We are in a series this summer, uh, very creatively titled Summer in the Psalms. Guess what we're doing? We're reading the Psalms this summer. Uh, it's been a joy to go through these together uh, as a church on Sunday mornings, but I also want to encourage you, as I did last week, I want to challenge you to read through the book of Psalms for yourself this summer, particularly the, the month of August. So if you don't have a plan for your Bible reading in August, or if now might be a good time to pause Second Chronicles and jump into another part of the Bible, um, I want to challenge you to participate with us in the month of August. Uh, Christians have been doing this for centuries, uh, reading through the Psalms over the course of a month. If you break them up into five a day, and then you take one day just for the biggie, Psalm 119, you'll get through it in a month. Now, five all at one time feels like a lot. You could do two or three in the morning, two or three in the evening, and we can get into the Psalms together. Summer's a great time to do that. Our schedules often are a little more flexible, and we can just ease into God's Word and let it uh, lead us in prayer as we meditate on it. The Psalm we're going to continue, uh, c consider today is, as I said, Psalm 51. Last week, uh, the Psalm we looked at, Psalm 63, shows us how to engage with God when we feel perhaps far from him, uh, largely due to troubles and anxieties and maybe a certain just spiritual dryness. Psalm 51 shows us what to do and how to engage with God when we feel far from him because of guilt. It's been beloved in the church. It's often referenced. And so I'm looking forward to, to meditating on it together this morning. Psalm 51. To the choir master... A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls 
will be offered on your altar. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you that you have not left us alone in our guilt, but you've given, given guidance in your word to lead us through it. And so we pray, lead our hearts even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title of this morning's message is Where to Go with Guilt. Uh, where to Go with Guilt. Believe it or not, I actually think, and you can test me on this and see what you think about this, I think we live in a world that's saturated with guilt. Now you may think, you know, I don't really know a lot of people who are walking around thinking about how guilty they are. Uh, a lot of people that I know are maybe living very licentiously or, or freely. Uh, they don't really seem to be all that bothered by it. But I would say that I think the environment that we live in, particularly technologically, um, has dialed up guilt in our society in an unprecedented way. We now have information about what's going on around the world. We can gain information about anything we do, any decision we need to make, all through a device that we have, most of us, in our pockets. And we have a way of interacting with each other via that technology that assigns moral weight to our decisions like I think no generation has ever experienced before. Let us consider for a moment your morning coffee. Did those who harvested that coffee get paid a fair wage? I hope you found out. Uh, I hope you know before you drank it. When you bought groceries last night, I hope you're very well aware of uh, the, the inner workings of each and every company that created the food that you purchased. Otherwise, you could be unwittingly or unknowingly supporting, be supporting something that, that you wouldn't want to support. We have information that, that leads us to have to grapple with these sorts of things. We also live in a 24-7 news cycle that lets us know every atrocity that's going on anywhere in the world at any time. I can't tell you how many times I'll work in, walk into church on a Sunday morning, it'd be 10 o'clock or so, and, and someone will walk up to me and ask, hey, are you going to pray about such and such this morning? And I'll just say, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I haven't I had the time in that particular morning to peruse the particular uh, news service they've been on, but this individual is very sincerely and understandably troubled by what they're reading. And all of us, through whatever outlets we engage with, we find ourselves exposed to this, this information about these atrocities that are going on that I think far exceed our ability to really do much of anything about most of it, right? But God hasn't created us to carry that kind of, uh, of understanding about that kind of, uh, of atrocity without doing something about it. And so we live in this kind of perpetual state of awareness, but sort of... Uh, paralyzed from really being able to do all that much to affect change. So I think increasingly people feel the, the burden and the weight of guilt. Then there's the fact that we are all now publishers, not only uh, owners of opinions, we are publishers of opinions. Uh, we can tell people instantly around the world what we think about any given thing at, at any given time. And then there are those who would rightly referee that dialogue. Uh, have you showed sufficient outrage about the right kinds of bad things? Have you showed sufficient support publicly for the right things? 
And all of that being observed and responded to and refereed and evaluated by a hive of very online people. And we feel this through the expression of things people start to call things like virtue signaling or cancel culture. And then there, man, is the good old-fashioned voice in our heads (laughs) who is there whether our technology is or not. As 1 John says, our hearts condemn us. We know we are called to to live according to the holiness that God's called us to because we're created in his image, because his law is written on our hearts, and yet we so often fail to live up to his righteous standard, and deep down we just know it. So what in the world do we do with all that? Well, as I said last week, the Psalms are a roadmap, you might say, for engaging God in the vast range of human emotions and experiences. Whether you are so happy about life this morning, uh, so in love with God and so bursting with passion you could just run through a brick wall, or whether you are so overcome with grief and despair, it feels like your bones are crying. Wherever you are, the Psalms show us how to engage God honestly and sincerely in the midst of it. And this Psalm, as I said, lays out how to talk to God and even how to talk to yourself when you are experiencing guilt. Guilt is a heavy burden to bear. And God's way of dealing with it I would say, as we look through Psalm 51, is more real, is more freeing than all the other ways that we so often try to unload the burden of guilt off our backs. I think for many of us, our functional strategy for dealing with guilt uh, is avoidance. Maybe for others, it's just impermeable self-righteousness, right? No, I haven't done anything wrong. Well, dealing with guilt by avoidance is kind of like dealing with your bills by throwing away the mail. And dealing with guilt by self-righteousness is kind of like dealing with your bills by writing checks that you know are not going to clear. Either way, at best, you are delaying the inevitable. They both make the problem worse. They both fail to actually deal with it. And so the path to forgiveness, the path to freedom from guilt runs to God, not around him. The path to forgiveness and freedom from guilt runs to God, not around him. And so you might think of Psalm 51 as a trail map that shows us where to go with our guilt. Now let's think a little bit about the context of this psalm. At the beginning of it, I said last week, we have verse 0. We have a little prescript before we get into verse 1. Now we don't often know much about the historical context of any particular psalm. Uh, Sometimes we're just given very, very brief glimpses into what might perhaps be the historical setting. But in this case, that historical setting looms large. It says that this psalm is written by David after he had been confronted by the prophet Nathan 
after he had sinned with Bathsheba. And this whole ordeal is given to us in Scripture in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. I won't turn there this morning, but if you're unfamiliar, I'll just remind you, uh, this is King David. This is like the king of kings in the Old Testament. And God had promised him the kingship as a young man. He had anointed him. David, as we saw last week, had wandered through the wilderness for quite some time uh, in a time of testing and a sort of a proving ground as, as he was uh, approached and, and assaulted by uh, the current king. Eventually, that king Saul is deposed, and, and David just goes on a string of victory after victory. He comes in, he takes his rightful place, he leads his men into battle, and they just go to work. And 2 Samuel 9 and 10 recounts these things, one victory after another. And it seems like all of God's promises are, are coming to pass, and, and David is coming into his own, and the kingdom is coming into his own. And all of a sudden in chapter 11, it says that time of year, springtime has come when the kings lead their armies into battle. But David is chilling on the couch. For whatever reason, we don't know, he's not out with his army this go-round. And he, he rises up from his couch and he sees a woman bathing, this woman Bathsheba. And he's drawn to her and he takes her, uh, he lies with her. And then later, he tries to find out more information about who this woman is and what all this entails. And he finds out that she's the wife of one of his mightiest men, one of his most loyal servants. And so when he finds this out, he later finds out, she sends word to him that she's become pregnant. And so now David not only has the issue of having committed adultery with the wife of one of his greatest, most loyal warriors... But now, as the saying goes, the cover-up is going to become worse than the crime. And he schemes in all kinds of ways to, to try to deceive this man into making everyone think that the baby's actually his. When that doesn't work out because of the honor of the man, uh, eventually David schemes to have this man killed. He sends word, even by the man himself, to the commander of his army. He has the army press forward into the most pitched part of the battle. And then he instructs his men to pull back. And leave this one man on his own, so he's slain on the battlefield. So David is now guilty not only of, of adultery, he's not only guilty of deceit, he's guilty of murder. And it's in that context and response to that, that that Nathan, the prophet of God, comes to him and confronts him. And he tells him a very comp compelling and compassionate story that sort of enrages David about what someone could possibly do in a certain situation. And David says, you might have heard famously, thou art the man. In other words, the, the one that you're so upset about, David, it's you. You're the one that's done this great atrocity. And David is convicted. He's humbled when he's confronted. And at some point along the way, in response to all this, it seems he, he pens this prayer. God is so kind in his word to give us examples of people like this. He so often gives us examples in Scripture of how he delivered people from especially grievous sin as an example to build our confidence in how he can treat ours. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy. 
It said, God gave mercy to me as the chief of sinners so that in me as the foremost, in me as the really, really, really bad sinner, God might display to those of you who would believe later an example of his perfect patience. And God does that here for us with with David. And so the idea is if this roadmap of repentance can work for him, it certainly can work for you. The reason we know this is intended not only for David but for us is not only because it's in the Bible, but if you note in the prescript, it says this is to the choir master. This very individual, personal psalm of repentance becomes a congregational song for all the people. It's meant to be a guide for all the people, even though it uses very individual language. It's meant to be a guide for them corporately and how to confess their own sins. Here's what the roadmap looks like, and we'll go through it fairly briefly. The first step on this um, roadmap to repentance, where we go with guilt, is first and foremost, we go to God. Now, this might sound like the most obvious thing in the world, but it's the most hardest, it's the most difficult step by far. I said it last week, I'll say it again, the two most important words in this psalm are, oh, God. Oh, God. It's my experience personally, and it's my experience pastorally, that so often it is far down the road of the burden of guilt before so many of us bring it to the Lord. We tend to hide. We tend to hold it. Why is this so hard for us? When we recognize our failings in sin, why is it so hard for us to turn to God. For some, it's because maybe you've been so berated by others, so belittled by people who have smelled a whiff of weakness in you, maybe in your family or maybe in your workplace, that you just cannot imagine getting mercy from God. You know, if, if I've been so berated by people who were just fellow humans like me, how much more so would I get that kind of response from a perfectly holy and just and righteous God? And so you have this kind of shrink back by nature because you can't imagine mercy. Sometimes this is hard for us because if we're honest, we are so demanding with others. We're exacting with the people in our lives. We we expect the best, we demand the best, and when we don't get it, rather than help, we berate, we belittle. And we can't imagine God being any different than we've been. Sometimes it's, it's hard for us because we just have a tendency to relate with God based on our performance. That's what we went through in the book of Galatians for so many months earlier in the year. We just think that we are right with God when we're doing all the right things and that we're not right with him, that he doesn't love us, that he doesn't extend grace to us if we're not. And so we can't imagine coming to him before we've kind of fixed ourselves up. And so we just wallow in this path of guilt until we've sorted it out for ourselves. For whatever reason, we find it counterintuitive to turn to God with our guilt. He's he's the one who established the law that we've broken. He's the one who is holy and just and would rightly, justly carry out our sentence. But friends, what we know when we know the gospel 
is that he is also the one who made a way, made the only way for us to be redeemed. The very God who we have offended is the God who made a way for us to be forgiven and cleansed and freed through the work of Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life of obedience to God that no one ever has. And then he died the death of punishment for sin that you and I deserved. And then he rose on the third day in victory over that sin and over death and ascended to the right hand of the Father so that now through faith in him, his righteousness becomes ours. It gets accredited to us. Our transgressions get blotted out and we experience cleansing. We can run to him with our guilt when we know that's who he is. We run to him in light of his character. Verse 1 says it. Have mercy, O God, according to what? According to your exacting judgment. No. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. We bring, in these verses, transgressions, iniquities, and sin. But God brings grace, steadfast love, and abundant mercy. Mercy that's more than enough. I think when we hear phrases like steadfast love, sometimes they they pass over us because we use that word in such squishy ways in our culture. If you have asked someone in the street how to define love, I think they'll probably have a difficult time answering it. I mean, functionally, it just is often this sort of blind affirmation of who you are. It's just like really good vibes about you, right? Um, but biblical love is so much more than that. It's an absolute commitment to your well-being. And that's the kind of steadfast love that God has covenanted to have with his people. And so when David comes to him, God doesn't say, you know what, that's okay, Dave, no worries, you're awesome. No, he says, David, what you did was wrong. I'm going to deal with it. Bring it to me, and I'll show you a better way. So the path to forgiveness, we see first and foremost, runs to God, not around him. Where we go with our guilt is first to God. Then David shows us the next thing we do with it is confess. David owns it. He just wears it. He acknowledges the pervasive presence of sin. Let me read it again in verse 3. It says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now let me pause there. David is not saying that his sin didn't have very real consequences on other people. It did. But he's saying, once all that's dealt with, at the end of the day, I've still got to deal with God. He even goes on in verse 5 to say, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin even did my mother conceive me. David's not saying conception is wrong. He's not saying his birth was wrong. He's saying that we are born into sin, and so it just permeates who we are. And so what that means is there's really no one that can escape the gaze of God and his justice. 
There's no one in this room that doesn't need Psalm 51. So let me just pause right here. If you're, you know, halfway through this message, you're thinking, I'm so glad my wife is hearing this. Uh, I'm so glad my kids are here to hear this today. Um, Let's just stop right there. This is for you. This is for me. We all have to engage with God for ourselves. And David owns it. Like we stop and think, we can ask ourselves, man, what do, we, what do we tend to do when we're faced with the reality of our sin? I think sometimes we, we tend to deny it. You know, everything is someone else's fault. If they would just get it together, then I wouldn't respond this way. Or we tend to minimize it. Well, yeah, but it's not as bad as what everybody else does, right? I do this at work, but it's not as bad as what the other people do. So we minimize it. Or we avoid it. And we just pretend it's, it's not there. We, we just try to numb it. We, we try to stay away from it for as long as we can. Not have to face up to it. Or maybe on the other extreme, we wallow in it. We just kind of sit in this self-loathing, I can't believe I did it again. And we just stay there. And rather than it being a godly grief that leads us to repentance and this this kind of worldly sorrow that becomes this kind of twisted um, comfort to us when we wallow in our guilt. But what's absent in all of those responses is God. And thanks be to God, he doesn't deny our guilt. He deals with it. I think that's the most hopeful thing that you can have in mind when you know you are going to God with that guilt. Is you're not just going to get empathy. You're not just going to get a strategy. You're going to deal with somebody who can clean it, who can do something about it, who can take it. So we go to God, we confess. And then in verses 6 through 9, David says we pursue restoration, confession and restoration. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, he says, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And so then he prays that God would do a number of things, and all this language is future tense. He says, purge me with hyssop. Now, hyssop is a a, a plant. It would be sort of brought together and and into a bunch, and it was used in in, uh, Israel's day as part of uh, religious celebration as a sign of cleansing. So when when people came guilty, when people came with their sin, they would be sprinkled with hyssop. When someone was unclean and they had to be put outside the camp, part of the restoration process for them of being able to come back into the camp is they would be sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice and that sprinkling would be done with with hyssop. And so David knows God's not going to sort of emerge out of the sky with a plant. He's speaking poetically, saying, God, in the same way you cleanse us, In our time of need, when we've been outcast, Lord, would you come and cleanse me? Would you you purify me? He wants to be taught the truth. He says, you delight in truth in the inward being. He he wants to be cleansed. He, He prays, wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. And maybe you've had that feeling with guilt at times where it's like, I just can't take enough showers to get this thing off me. It's because our guilt isn't external, it's internal, and God deals with it in the heart. 
And then he says, restore me. Let the bones, one translation says, let the bones dance which you have broken. In the same way that people would be cleansed when they had been outcast during, because of their uh, not being pure, pure and, and having to stand outside the camp and come back in and being sprinkled with that hyssop. The picture is them re-entering the camp and being welcomed with celebration, with, with open arms. It's this renewal and, and restoration that's taken place. We pray for that restoration. We pray at a heart level, God, teach me the truth. God, cleanse me from sin. God, restore me to fellowship with you and with others. Then he goes on in 10 through 13 to describe the process of renewal. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Jamie and I live in a somewhat older neighborhood. And one of our favorite things to do is just to walk through, uh, through our neighborhood. And we've lived there for a couple of years now. And there's a lot of this the old growth, old landscaping. So as we first started walking through in the fall and winter, uh, it was hard to really get a sense of what exactly, you know, you were walking around. And then, man, all, lo and behold, late spring into the summer, these, these trees start bearing fruit. And we're walking down the path and, man, oh, wow, turns out that's a peach tree. Didn't, didn't know that. Uh, oh, wow, in that one family's backyard, that's an apple tree. Oh, wow, all along this lake here, these are all blackberries. Had no idea. And all these azaleas and hydrangeas and different sort of flowers start, start budding. The, the fruit that, that is born of these trees reveals the nature of the tree. And likewise, David is getting at the fact that, that our actions reveal the state of our hearts. And so to experience change, to walk out repentance so that we leave what that guilt has been weighing us down for when we leave that behind to pursue something new. What we need is not only to modify our outward behavior, we need a transformation of soul. And that's what he prays for. Create in me a clean heart. That cleansing happened as the Spirit of God through the Word of God gives us new affections. So that a heart change is, is not merely an expunged record. The transgressions aren't only blotted out, but he's praying now that there would be a new inclination toward holiness. One author, uh, Paul Tripp's famous analogy on this is to address this without a cleansing of heart. To address our guilt only by changing our behavior. It's sort of like walking out to one of those fruit trees I described. And you see a bunch of rotten fruit. And it's an apple tree maybe in this case. And you say, you know what, that doesn't look very good. I don't like that rotten fruit. And you go in your house and you grab a bag of apples and a stapler. And you just start stapling fresh apples onto the tree. Well, before long, those same apples rot. <laughs> They're back on the ground. And you got to go back in the house and haul out some fresh apples to staple on, right? That's behavior modification. 
What God has for us, what he calls us to, what David's psalm leads us into is a renewal of heart. A transformation inwardly so that we are cleansed and renewed and transformed at the heart level. So that we're not merely modifying our behavior, but we're living out of new affections. Create in me, he says, a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. In David's prosperity, it seems that he had lost sight of the joy of his salvation. And that loss of spiritual joy had led him to be vulnerable to temptation. And so he prays now for a heart that is full of joy over the fact that God saved him. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold a willing spirit within me. The road to repentance that David's leading us on starts with great sorrow and rightly so, but it doesn't, it doesn't end there. Sorrow for sin should lead us to a recognition of the grace of God, the mercy of God, the steadfast love of God. In such a way that our hearts are renewed and we experience a joyful awe that we're forgiven. And so he prays, Lord, restore to me that joy. I think we rarely think of our struggle with guilt as being very much related to a lack of spiritual joy. And by that, I don't mean a happy, clappy, everything's always fine but a recognition of the fact that what we sang about earlier is true. I am forgiven. The blood has washed me clean. And in light of that reality, the joy of my salvation is full. He ends there. After confession, after renewal, it leads us into worship. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The fruit of this kind of transformation is that you can't hold it in. It goes public. Later, he says, you know, if you do this in me, if I experience this restoration, I'm going to start teaching other sinners your way. I will teach transgressions your ways, transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. You just can't help but, but keep it in when you're full of this awareness that you've been forgiven. Jesus himself gives us an incredible example in the Gospels of how this bears itself out in the lives of a couple of people in Luke chapter 7. I want to briefly read it to you, and then I'm going to pray for us. It says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. 
And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he had canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Man, if you want to begin to experience more of the love of God in your life, if you want to begin to experience knowing it more for yourself and extending it more to others, the place you start is with a recognition of all that you've been forgiven. Because he who's been forgiven much loves much. And the way we stay, the way we keep the roots of our souls deep in the soil of forgiveness so that we bear the fruit of praise and joy. It's when we're honest with God about our guilt. When we come to him in a spirit of, of confession, when we plead to him for mercy, when we ask him to create in us a new heart, and then he does. So, man, if you're here and, and you're thinking, okay, how do I deal with this in my own life? But not only for you, but in your relationships. I would say if you want to be a better parent, man, start, start your day confessing your own sin. You want to be a better spouse, start your day coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, create in me a clean heart. You want to be a more faithful worker, start your day saying, oh, Lord, how can I serve you in a spirit of holiness, in a spirit of joy, in a spirit of praise, in light of all I've been forgiven? Not out of avoiding guilt, not by burying it, not by denying it, not by living with a false sense of arrogance and self-righteousness, but living faithfully before the Lord, humbly aware of his forgiveness. As we've talked about guilt this morning, I trust for many of us, there's just something that's, that's beginning to nag at you, something that's rising to the surface. And I just want to encourage you to pay attention that's the Lord in his kindness bringing, bringing up whatever that might be. And I'm actually going to give us a, just a moment before we sing. Uh, rather than me praying, I want to give you a chance to pray. And just even right now, begin to pray David's prayer. Begin to walk his path of silent, honest confession, whatever that might, might be. Of a prayer that God would create renewal in you at a heart level. And that he would restore to you the joy of your salvation. Would you take one moment and pray, and then I'll close us.
Father, I thank you that you have not left us alone to wallow in our guilt, but you've called us to come. And you've given us a path to you in the midst of our despair. Father, I pray that you would give us, each and every one of us, the grace to be honest with ourselves and with you about the guilt that we bear. God, that we would experience your cleansing power. Father, we thank you that in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation. That you have forgiven and set us free from all our sin through the blood of Jesus poured out for us. And so, Father, for every sin that's just been brought before you, we trust that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's your promise. And so, Lord, even as we begin to sing in the next moment, I pray that you would restore to each one of us the joy of our salvation. God, that we would leave the burden of guilt right here on the floor in this room and walk out with the joy of our salvation restored to us. And Father, when the enemy creeps up on the drive home and tempts us to despair and lies to us about who we are, I pray that you would make our hearts quick to take up the truth of your word, that we would hold on to the promises of the gospel. And God, when we fail you again, between now and the time we lay our head on the pillow, would you give us the grace to turn to you quickly, that we would not wander and wallow on our own under the weight of guilt any longer than we ought, but that we would experience the freedom of your forgiveness as we turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.